a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm welcoming welcoming back a familiar voice as uh, Alexander Salter, economics professor in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, joins me. Alex, uh, good to have you back on the show. We're not going to be talking about the Federal Reserve this time around, and that may be a good thing. You actually ruffled a few feathers uh, among some of my listeners last time. Congratulations. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I hope I didn't upset uh, anybody too much. And, of course, let me say thank you again for having me on. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's and, and when, I, when I tell you you ruffled feathers, I do mean that as a compliment. Um, you know, it, for people who want to hear people sitting around politely agreeing with each other, there's always NPR, but uh, it's, <laughs> I think it's good to bump up against the limits of our understanding to hear different and challenging viewpoints. And and you you even you know you challenge some of my viewpoints as as far as what I have believed and what I've thought about the Federal Reserve and and so I, I'm I'm excited for the topic we're going to tackle today because I have to admit Alex this is a topic I have written off maybe I'm just kind of a pessimist but I don't think of America as much of a spacefaring nation anymore and 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 in fact it, it seems like since I was a kid which I was a kid during the Gemini and Apollo programs. Um, I remember how excited, you know, people were about man going to the moon. I remember drinking Tang and eating the astronaut uh, food bars or whatever they, they were that they, you know, took up there on those space flights. But after the shuttle program and particularly after a couple of shuttle disasters and the shutting down of that program, it seems like there's been a big question mark over whether space was a priority. And your article on the Hill, Rockets and Profits, How Corporations Will Make Us a Permanent Spacefaring Civilization, seems to indicate that there's a lot of life left in that to desire to explore space. Talk to us about wh- where do we begin from, from the glory days of the 60s, 70s, and you know the shuttle program of the 80s and 90s. Where do we stand today in terms of the space program? That's a great question. And so as you noted, up until pretty recently, things in space were not looking great for the United States. Uh, many people were less than pleased by the fact that a couple of years ago when we tried to go to the International Space Station, we had to rely on a Russian rocket to get us there. So that was not exactly something that was great for national prestige. But I think the moment to start in this new space era was with the successful mission of two NASA astronauts to the International Space Station that began in May and ended in August. It was the first time that there was a launch taking place from U.S. soil in quite some time, and the rocket was entirely privately made by SpaceX. So a private corporation got the astronauts there, the private corporation got the astronauts home safely, and they recovered the rocket. The rocket that the astronauts used to get there is recoverable, which is one of the major innovations that SpaceX made with rocket technology. And I really think that that's a paradigm for this new space age that we're about to embark on. What we're going to observe, I think, is that private corporations are going to focus a lot on the things that they do best, namely delivering the transportation, and the public sector is going to focus on the things that the public sector does best, setting the vision, maintaining adherence to international law, exploration, basic science. 
I think this is a very exciting opportunity for both the private and public sectors to pursue their comparative advantages to get us most out of this upcoming space age. So I, for one, am very excited to see how things go in the next couple of years. Okay, so I have to ask, are we going to be beholden to Elon Musk or are there, are there other industry or are there other, uh, you know, private companies beside SpaceX that, that are, you know, pioneering in, in, this, uh, in this area? SpaceX certainly seems to be the leader right now. They're not the only one in the field. Let's remember that the United Launch Alliance has been around for a while. They also have a heavy rocket, uh, but that costs about $350 million per launch. The comparable rocket put out by SpaceX, the Falcon Heavy, Cost between 90 and 150 million per launch. That's a significant discount. So I think that based on recent events, SpaceX is the undisputed innovator and leader in commercial launch right now. And I think a lot of other people are going to be looking to them to see the most exciting innovations and the most exciting technologies. And right now, I'm not too worried about anything like a monopoly or an oligopoly because if you look at launch costs, they're just going down, down, down. From 1970 to about 2000, the price of accessing space was pretty much the same, about $18,500 per kilogram. Since SpaceX has come onto the scene, that figure has dropped quite a bit. It now costs about $2,700 per kilogram to access low Earth orbit. And furthermore, industry experts are saying that that figure could fall to under $1,000 per kilogram in as little as five years. So I, again, find this whole thing very exciting, and I'm not too worried about any of the usual uh, economist fears associated with monopoly or oligopoly. I see innovation. I see cost-cutting. I see a bright horizon. It's fascinating when you put it in, in the terms that you did of how much per kilogram to, to escape Earth's gravity. And I, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin estimating those costs. But I'm also fascinated to see those costs coming down. And, and it, it brings to mind, okay, a couple of questions here. Obviously, uh, putting people into orbit, putting satellites into orbit or sending people to the space station, that's one thing. What does this mean in terms of broader exploration, maybe going back to the moon, maybe pushing for a manned mission to Mars or even beyond that. That's the natural follow-up. So as part of the Artemis program, NASA has said that it wants to bring the next man and the first woman to the moon in 2024. Uh, Hopefully a Mars mission is also going to be something that we branch off from using those moon missions as a sort of foundation for understanding how we can get into deep space like that. The question is, how are we going to get there? NASA has been building its next-generation rocket since about 2011. It's called the Space Launch System, SLS for short. But the head of NASA's human spaceflight program, uh, Kathy Luter, has just announced that there's a big cost overrun with this program. Cost estimates for finishing the program are now about 33% higher than they were in 2017. So, so far, the taxpayer has spent about $20 billion on Space Launch System, on SLS, And it's projected that each launch is going to cost the taxpayer using that NASA rocket about $2 billion. In contrast, the uh, rocket that SpaceX is currently developing, Starship, codenamed Starship, could cost as little, if Elon Musk is right, as little as $2 million per launch, launch. And that thing can get 100 tons into low Earth orbit, and it is completely recoverable. To say that this is a game changer is... A wild understatement. Even previous NASA administrators, seeing what SpaceX has done lately, have said, look, at the time it made sense for us to invest public money in the SLS, but given all these innovations that SpaceX is coming up with, we think that the private sector is really going to deliver us that next generation rocket that can get us to 
the moon to Mars and beyond. Well, there was a time, and again, I'm hearkening back to the to the space glory days, you know, the 50s and 60s, when space exploration was still in its infancy. Only government could possibly think of, you know, trying to cover the cost or bring together the, the people and the materials. Um, what shifted over that uh, series of decades to where now the private sector is able to do this and do it for so much less than, than what it was costing government? Improvements in technology, general innovation, and I think there's been an understanding that the technology was pioneered by the public sector. And also, we do need to keep one thing in mind. NASA has never actually built a rocket start to finish. Even in the heydays of the U.S. space age 40, 50 years ago, it was the case that private companies were heavily involved. It was just a matter of where the exact boundary is between the public and the private. Right now, more than 1,000 private U.S. companies are participating in building SLS. However, NASA's running the program, and they're actually assembling the rocket using uh, old technology left over from the shuttle system. So what we're actually seeing, I think, is not a complete transition from public to private, but a shifting of the boundary. And I think what we have to think for that is experimentation, trial and error. Let's not forget that SpaceX was founded in 2002 and had many years of rocket failures and explosions on the launch pad before they delivered something that actually worked. For a while, they were something in the industry that most people weren't taking very seriously, but they have managed to defy all expectations through prudent actions, trial and error, making sure that they're innovating in a responsible yet also exciting way. And it also helps that the public sector is still an important customer. So that's something that we can never forget with all this. The public sector is still going to be the primary customer for space technologies for the foreseeable future. So while we're shifting at the margin to a commercial model, I think we also need to keep in mind that this is not going to be some cowboy capitalism, free markets only thing going on. The public definitely has an interest in continuing this program as the customer for things that can now be more efficiently done by the private sector. That's where I think we're headed. Okay, so space tourism may be still a little ways down the road, but we can always hope, right? We can always hope, and space tourism, especially uh, suborbital, is something that you actually might see a lot more of in the next couple of years. That will probably be the first viable commercial thing going on. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back in just a few moments. Alexander Salter is my guest. We are talking about space. And I mean, we're talking about it in in the good sense. We will uh, come back. We'll talk about who governs space. Come on, somebody's got to be in charge up there. And Alex has some answers for us. Stick around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am visiting with Alexander Salter. He is a professor of economics, but we're talking something a little more interesting than economics right now. Not that economics isn't interesting, Alex, but um, space really captivates people's uh, attention and imagination. And your article, which I will link to in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, is uh, on the Hill, Rockets and Profits, How Corporations Will Make Us a Permanent Spacefaring Civilization. And I want to talk for just a second about... With with the increased interest in space and the, the lower cost of sending things into space, 
where does the uh, where where does international law come together to help uh, regulate this? As a libertarian, I'm not calling for more regulation, but I'm sure somebody is is doing some kind of air traffic control, so to speak, over all that stuff that's orbiting up there. Sure. So public international law is the first place that you want to look when you want to talk about governance of space. So the quote-unquote Magna Carta of space is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which has been ratified by all the major spacefaring nations. It really is the foundational international treaty governing how the spacefaring nations will use space. The treaty has many provisions in it that are relevant to military use, commercial use, etc., One of the most important ones is Article 2 of that treaty, which basically says no extension of territorial sovereignty to space. What does that mean? It means that governments can't annex the moon, can't annex Mars. Whatever goes on in space, when we plant the flag up there, we are not claiming that that becomes U.S. soil. Space remains a global commons, at least legally speaking. Another important article of that treaty is Article 6, which requires governments to continually monitor their uh, nationals when operating in space. So the question is, what does that mean in terms of continually monitor? Does that mean micromanage? Is a more hands-off approach okay? These are open questions in public international space law, and I actually think it's going to be national space law at the within-state level that determines how a lot of these provisions are understood and applied in the coming years, especially as celestial competition between the United States on the one hand and her allies and China and Russia on the other hand sort of heats up in the next couple of years. I like where in your article you actually quote a space lawyer named Laura Montgomery. And and maybe this is just me geeking out a little bit here, but Alex, I never knew such a thing as space lawyers existed. <laughs> they are out there, and they're actually fascinating to read. I've been reading a lot of space law for a couple of projects that I'm working on, and uh, the, the inner geek in me is very happy with what I'm reading. Well, I, can, I, I totally enjoy the idea of... Um, commercial applications. And, and I, I say that because, in my opinion, the, the, the power of the free market means that uh, these people who are exploring space and sending people and, and, and payloads and satellites into space, if they are subject to the market, then they're, they're subject to, to do it for uh, a better price, you know, to, to not to just Hey, the taxpayers are funding it. Only the best for us. You know, they, they have to do it efficiently. They have to do it in a way that's beneficial. They can't just be yeah, they, they they can't be irresponsible. The market will hold them accountable. Now, at the same time, I have a little bit of concern because I'm sure that uh, space is something that uh, our, our military is keeping an eye on. What do you know about, uh, for instance, I, I understand the United States actually has a legitimate space force agency at this point. The United States does have a space force that has obviously taken over the military responsibilities of, for example, protecting U.S. space assets, uh, because those assets are not only important for commercial applications, but also affect the ability of the United States to wage war. So it's something that a separate branch of the military had been discussed for a while. That's not something that the Trump administration created out of thin air. Uh, That is something that they spearheaded, though, and so it was interesting that that acquired the requisite support in Congress and in the eyes of the public for that to happen there. Uh, There are provisions in public international space law that limit the military uses of outer space, especially with respect to nuclear weapons. At the same time, the common acceptance among the spacefaring nations is that space is a warfighting domain. And what we mean by that is not a hope for escalating armed tensions into the stars, but simply because space assets can and must be used to prosecute domestic security concerns on Earth, 
that's going to be a valid concern for how you protect those assets. And so I think that's the thinking behind having a separate dedicated military branch devoted to protecting U.S. supremacy in space. Alex, what are the what are the potential commercial concerns that would have companies or corporations looking towards supporting and even helping advance space exploration? Um, you know, I mean, I think of mining. Or are they going to go mine unobtainium on some nearby planet or some moon or something? But um, realistically, what is up there that that could be monetized or or made uh, you know a profit generating venture? First off, thank you for the Avatar reference. That was great. <laughs> uh, second of all, that's a, that's a really interesting question to figure out what sorts of assets are actually up there that we can use. Space mining has been something that's been in the public imagination for a while. One of the most valuable things that we could actually get in space is water. We use water in part to make rocket fuel. And the reason that it's so valuable up in space is because it's already up in space which means that we no longer have to get it up out of Earth's gravity well, which is really, really hard and expensive. It's why rockets cost so much money. There are also valuable minerals that we could potentially mine. The big question associated with all this is what's the property right status of all this? Remember Article 2 of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty that says no extension of territorial sovereignty. Does that mean that you can't have private property rights? Until pretty recently, that was an open question, but some recent policies by the U.S. seems to suggest that is not the position of the U.S. government. In 2015, Congress passed a law. Um, one of its provisions was protecting U.S. nationals' claims to celestial resources. And in April of this year, President Trump signed an executive order promoting the commercial development of outer space. So the position of the United States seems to be, look, we're not going to try and annex the moon. We're not going to try and annex Mars. We relinquish any and all claims to territorial sovereignty. But just as you can go fishing in international waters without owning the waters, whatever fish I pull out of international waters becomes your fish, we're going to approach celestial resources in the same way. We don't own the moon, but if we mine something, we're going to protect your property rights to it. And that's a huge step because once you have property rights protection, you have that commercial incentive. So we're still a good ways away from the technology being able to do that and put it to use. But it's good that we're getting the legal foundations in place early because that needs to happen for all the exciting stuff to happen down the road. Well, I, I never thought that I would see, at least within my lifetime, talk about, uh, you know, the space economy and that being a factor and, and maybe even an engine of economic growth. Let's talk for a moment about uh, how will the happy middle be found between government and between the, the private sector when it comes to expanding our, our, our space-faring ways? Um, is, is this something that's going to have to be taken care of in court? Is it something that can occur more on a, on a voluntary basis? Is that possible when working with government? I think it can happen organically. I think it can be refined through trial and error. Uh, just like you're seeing with launch, there does seem to be a growing awareness that there are these things that the private sector does really well. When we're talking about delivering a good as cheaply as possible, like a rocket, that's clearly something that the private sector is going to have a comparative advantage at doing. What I think the government's role is going to be in all of this is promoting settlements, promoting exploration, promoting basic science, and making sure that U.S. nationals comply with international law in space. Uh, and, and economics jargon, just for a second, we frequently refer to things like basic science and exploration as public goods, which means that once they're created, they're available to everybody, even if someone doesn't pay for them. 
Well, for precisely that reason, if they're available, even if people don't pay for them, people have an incentive to underpay. And so for that reason, many economists think that those functions can more easily be carried out by a government. Now, there are lots of cases of public goods being uh, supplied privately, but I think in this case, precisely because public international space law pretty much requires that states are going to be the primary actors in space for the foreseeable future, you are still going to have governments setting the direction for space activities and providing broad governance oversight. But in terms of executing the vision, I think that's going to be increasingly private. And I think that that's a good thing. I think you're going to see more exciting space technologies and activities for lower cost of the taxpayer as a result of that. Alexander Salter, thank you for being my guest. Fascinating topic. I'll, I'll link to your article in the show notes, and I hope we get to talk again real soon. Brian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by our friends at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can access them by going to the website staplesmortgage.com. I know a lot of people are on the move, a lot of people fleeing from big metropolitan cities or areas, trying to come someplace where, uh, you know, life is a little more peaceful, a little more down to earth. If you are one of those people and you are looking for a new home loan, here's the good news. Patriot Home Mortgage is active in 23 different states. That means my friend John Staples can help you. Go to his website, staplesmortgage.com, and let the the Staples-Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage help you find your new home loan, get you pre-qualified, maybe even refinance your existing home loan if you're already living where you want to live. Staplesmortgage.com. Okay, I've got Gary Welsh with me. Hi, Gary. Hi, Brian. Nice to be back. Yeah, and, and we're, we're going to, in, in a strange departure, we're going to be talking about politics a little bit today, but I, I think in a very productive way, because uh, let's face it, the election cycle is in full shriek right now. Um, things are getting interesting. The the politicking back and forth between the two major parties, it's, I guess it's about what I would expect for a general election year. So among the things we hope to discuss in this segment Let's talk a little bit about uh, the two parties. Let's talk about third parties, even though I can hear people groaning and rolling their eyes as soon as I say those words. But uh, let's let's start with the two parties. And what are some of the essential things we should understand about the two-party system as it's presently constituted? Well, where this is all connected from our previous conversations is we've been talking about the COVID crisis and what government has done. And we've been talking about back Black Lives Matters and what government has not done. And the commonality of this is the two political parties that are involved in these scenarios. And both of them are equally to blame. Both of them have had major downfalls and major shortcomings with this. And, and here's kind of to the point that I want to make, and it's just something that I want to ask you about. Would you feel that if we did a poll of all the Democrats and all the Republicans and asked them this question, do you feel that your party represents you and that they are striving to meet your goals? What do you think the response would be? Uh, This is just my, my gut feeling, but I think a lot of people would probably say no. 
That's exactly right. They would. They would. It would be almost overwhelming that they would say we do not feel like they are representing us, that they're trying to achieve the same goals, that they hold my principles. That's one of the big things that comes out in polls when they ask, do you feel, and the Republicans, believe it or not, come out worse than the Democrats on this, and that is, do you feel that your party upholds your principles? And, and a large number of Republicans say, no, they don't. Then my party is not representing my principles. And we're seeing that in action. You and I have discussed how government has acted in the COVID crisis, and you and I live in a quote-unquote red state. This is like Republican territory. This is a, a major place for them in Utah where we are at. And yet we saw a govern, a Republican governor and a Republican legislature basically say, we're going to trash the Constitution and not uphold our principles, the principles that they say that they have. And so this is something that we bring up in the book, Embrace Capitalism. We talk about the two parties, and what we say is these guys are really trying to build bigger government and a bigger power base for themselves. It's not about the Constitution. It's not about the principles. It's about a bigger power base for themselves. And the only difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is they both want a very large government, but they just want to be in charge of that government. Yeah. And you see this year after year. Spot on. No, I, I don't disagree in the least. And here's here's the tough thing, at least uh, th- that I, I confront this on a day-to-day basis. It's easy to preach to the choir. It's easy to, to say, okay, so these are things that I know people who are already listening to this program or this podcast will, will, will likely agree with. But uh, that, that large um, none-of-the-above group that you talked about, the ones who say, no, I really don't feel like I'm being represented by either party, I lay awake at night and try to figure, how can I best reach them? Or how can I, and it's not that I have all the answers for them, but how can I persuade them that um, maybe there's, there's another way to approach this rather than just feeling like they're isolated and, you know, out there drifting through space? Well, actually, that's exactly what I like to do in this episode is reach out to them. Uh, you know, again, going through our wrong thinkers, the, the, the whole thing about our show is we're reaching out to the wrong thinkers and we're giving you the resources and the information and the education so that you can go out there. Brian and I are just two guys, you know, on the radio, just talking and saying things. It requires an army to go out and repeat this and tell everybody, hey, there's this this new ideas that you guys should understand. And this is where it gets into the third party scenario. I had a conversation recently with an individual that's very much involved in the Republican Party here in Utah. And and she asked me if I was a member of the Republican Party. And I said, no, they don't hold up to my principles. I do not like the Republicans here in Utah. I don't look at them as being what I would consider, you know, Republican principles. And I'm not there. And she goes, well, you should join. And I said, do you feel like they represent you? And, and, and the funny part of it was that the meeting, we were talking about COVID. It was a meeting about how government really messed up on COVID. And so, of course, she was saying, no, I think they really messed up on this. And I said, well, that's why are you there? And she goes, well, Gary, join the Republican Party because we can reform it. And I hear this over and over <laughs> again. Let's reform it. Sure. Well, if you're going to reform, so want, if you're going to reform a party, why not? Why not join the Democratic Party and reform that? <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
But I even within the Democrats, I mean, I've never been involved with them extensively. I've never been involved with a liberal political party, but I have been involved with the libertarians. I have been involved with the Constitution Party, and I have been involved with a with a semi, you know, I would say major, but not quite major third party. And that is the uh, Independent America Party, the IAP. And, you know, having been exposed to that, I see a couple of things about what's going on. And, and what I told her and what I want to tell our wrong thinkers is you cannot reform the Democrats nor the Republican parties. They're corrupt. Just get over it. It is a corrupt party. Those who have corrupted it have taken over. They are in charge. They're manipulating things. It's too late for reform. Now, how is that kind of how? That? Well, I would, but then again, I've been kind of a cynic for a while, and I, I you know, my eyes, I, I'd like to think my eyes have been open to this. When you, what you started out talking about, Gary, about how power is the primary concern. It's, it's not principle. It's power, and and I think that perfectly defines how both of those parties operate. Um, so I, I'm curious, though, what kind of reception do you get, though, from those people who think? But but if we if we just get enough good people to join this, we can change the party. Um, do they do they push back, or do they do they not want to believe that uh, these parties are beyond being uh, brought back? They are fooled by the system because by the way that the parties are supposed to operate. In that, you know, you have delegates and and the the precinct officers elect the, the chair people and whatnot in the state convention. You're supposed to elect all these individuals. And at the convention, it's the delegates that elect their candidates. They think, well, we still have a chance. We can control this. We can we can use that. But they don't realize how strong the manipulation is and how powerful that these small individuals have. And it's incorporated within the party. If the party had established itself so that it gave the power to the people, to the members, not to these elites, they would be structured totally differently. It's a very much a top-down approach. And I'll give you a good example. If a state Republican Party wants to actively promote themselves, they have to go begging national, the, the RNC, or someone like that, for money and assistance because they, they have access to all the big donors. And those money always comes with strings. It always comes with conditions. It always comes with, here's what you're going to do. And then the state go and do, does the exact same thing to the counties. If you want help from us, here's what you're going to do. You're going to play our song, and you're going to dance our dance. Well, and we and again, going back to all the, the COVID response, we saw state leaders right here in, in my home state of, of Utah do exactly that. Well, we have to do it this way. Otherwise, we don't qualify for those federal funds. And I contrast that with, uh, you know, Christy Noam from uh, South Dakota. I don't want the federal funds. I don't need them. Why? Because we didn't, you know, we didn't set fire to the, the state in order to try to save it. Well, let's let's put it on pause here. Gary, we'll come back and we'll, we'll pick up the other side of these commercial messages. Again, I'm going to, encur- going to encourage you, if you have the time, make the time. In fact, go to the website, thebrianhideshow.com, and check it out for yourself. You'll find show notes there. You'll find a way that you can sign up to uh, subscribe to the, the podcast. You can become a wrong thinker. You can actually support this program. And every single bit helps. We greatly appreciate it.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Gary Welch is my guest. We're talking about uh, parties, political parties, third parties. <laughs> I know people are skeptical. You're going to throw your vote away and it won't do any good. But, um, Gary, I think I'm with you. There, there's enough dissatisfaction out there that uh, we have to be approaching a tipping point of some kind because there are plenty of people who, who will flat out tell you, I just don't believe that either of the parties really, the two major parties, represent my values but out of fear that the other guys are going to win, you know, they go back and do the same thing over and over again. Okay, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for the lesser of two evils. I just, I, I can't help but think as crazy as this year has been, maybe one of the benefits will be we're going to reach a, a, a breaking point where that final straw on the camel's back is going to be placed and people are going to go, enough. I just can't do it anymore. Uh, unfortunately, I don't share your optimism. I I just I don't think that I don't think I think it's going to be business as usual, like it has been business as usual for the past 20, 30 years. I mean, what has changed recently? I know everybody gets excited about Trump, but guess what? Uh, when you look at government, it's the exact same thing. I, I like the guy. I mean, I'm not a big fan. I, I didn't vote for him, but um, I'm not as critical as everyone else is. But at the same time, I'm looking at what's going on and I it's the same old thing to me. I don't see any changes. It if we're waiting for something to happen, you're going to be waiting for a long time. So what's the alternative? Make it happen? Well, here's the thing. There there is a need for a third party. There it has to be. If if the two parties are corrupt, if you cannot reform them, if that's really out of the question, and they have demonstrated over and over again, I can give you example after example, how people have tried to reform these parties and have failed, how you've had individuals go in there. You you know, everybody is talking about Trump and his his opposition to the deep state. I'm not in that crowd. I don't think he is so much I think he's part of the deep state. I don't think he's really that big of a of an opponent to it. And I hope I don't get you in trouble for saying that. But the thing of it is, is, is when you look at this, the, the opportunity to reform is really, really small. So it's going to take a third party, but the problem with third parties is they go about it so wrong. Their approach is wrong. Their, their methodology is wrong. And they, because they mess up so bad, Nobody wants to join them. So the, it's not an alternative. You're not seeing a good alternative to the Republicans or Democrats. So what they say is, I'm better off staying trying to reform, even though I know that's impossible. I'm better off here than join the Libertarians or join the Constitution Party or join the IAP or, or the Green Party because they're not doing anything. When you look at their numbers, they're horrible. They're absolutely horrible. They're not making any impact at all. And there's where the problem is, is your third parties are not being effective at what they should be doing. So where's the breakdown? What, what are they missing? And, and I have to ask it in this context. Are they just not power hungry enough? <laughs> not Machiavellian <laughs> enough to, to do what needs to be done? No. And, and so I'm going to give you some things that I have learned by, by working with third parties that may help. 
Rule number one, or the, or I should say mistake number one, is they are all ideology-based. It is this, they, they focus on an ideology, ideology, and that becomes everything. And what happens is when you do that, you only attract fringe people, people who very, feel very strongly about that ideology and nothing else. And then what happens is that starts to build upon itself. And what it, what you end up with is this large group of people who are fanatical about your ideology. And, and that applies right across the board. So you start there. The second thing is they are looking at the party. Every, and this is all across the board. It is about the success of the party. What if we turned around and said, okay, what's important is the success of the country. That's what's important to us. I, it's not the party being successful that is important. It's the country being successful. And if you put that first, where you say, I want to take care of my country, I want to do what's right for my country, and that is more important to me than my political party being successful, I think that opens up different ideas and concepts and ways that you can approach people to talk to them about, hey, maybe there is an alternative out there. Well, it definitely shifts the focus away from power and back toward principle, because, you know, you can't you can't do what's right by the country without adhering to principle. You know, if you if you abandon the principles, you know, for so the, for the sake of some perceived short term political gain, you know, what's going to keep you holding true to them, you know, in, in times that uh, that are less pressing? You've already shown that, you know, you're willing to part with them when it suits your fancy. And unfortunately, within all three organizations, third party organizations that I have dealt with, I had found even corruption among them. And, and it is because all of these political parties have taken a top down approach. You, you put all the power in a chairperson, you put all the power in the executive committee, you put the, all the power in a small group of individuals, and then they just run things. If you want to be successful, you have to have a bottom-up approach. You have to have it so that it starts with an idea of, let's put the power in our county organizations. They control things. Not national, you know, not a chairperson, but you have to do that. And then the last thing is, you have to get rid of your victim mentality. All of them have this victimization. Oh, they outspend us. Oh, they're too powerful. <laughs> oh, they got all this corruption and they're, they're, you know, destroying us. And it's not our fault. We don't have a bad message. We don't have a, a bad system. No, it's their fault. And, and how can you get better unless you're willing to sit there and say, you know what? Maybe we need to look at ourselves. No, that's, that's a good point. So I have something I want to share with you, and I want to share with, with our, our listener as well. And that is every political ad ever distilled. So for those who are still kind of trying to cling to the idea, but no, 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 we got to vote for one or the other, I want you to listen to this and tell me that this isn't how our emotions are played like a fiddle at a barn dance. This election, your choice couldn't be more important. Our candidate is in flattering lighting and full bright color. Their candidate is in grainy high contrast black and white. Spotted through a telephoto lens from behind a bush. Coming back from God only knows where. Our guy points at the horizon and holds a baby. Their guy doesn't have a baby. Their guy has a golf club. The voiceover for our guy is calm measured bright their guy gets the lower register and sometimes we 
slow down. Our guy has clean headlines and the beautiful lens flare America needs. Here's a scary graph over a photo of their guy awkwardly laughing. Snap zoom. Do you want a snap zoom like that in office? Here's a photo of our guy saluting military veterans. Jump cuts, flashes, static, aggressive colors. You can't trust a guy with graphics like this. Our guy gets stock footage of sunrises and an American flag. Their guy's flag is upside down and on fire. Intercut with overdue bills, war, and a crying baby. Our guy gets doctors and astronauts and stimulus checks. Flatline, an eagle, hurricane, the Statue of Liberty, crime scene tape, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, a girl running in a wheat field to escape a dangerous sexual predator, welding, atomic bomb. This election, the choice is yours. Their guy or our guy. Inspiring slogan. There you go. Thanks to the good folks at Reason.com for putting that compilation together. Does that ring true to you, Gary? Oh, so much. Oh, so much. That rings so true. It, it is that. It is this, um, you know, what, what got me started on this a long time ago, um, I was in another state. I was in Washington State, and I was working very closely with the Re- Republican Party. Um, and I was having these conversations with high-level individuals, and they basically told me, they said, Gary, it's all about winning. It's not about principles. It's not what it, what what you know conservatives want. It's not about government. It's about winning, and we'll just do whatever it takes to win. And I was like, okay, I get it now. That was my awakening. That was when I w- awoke. Well, we have uh, we have some ideas for people who are willing to think outside that box, who are willing to to stand on principle. You know, we're, we're going to have more conversations about this, you and I, and, and invite you, the listener, to come and join us in this as well. It's uh, this is this is not to, you know, as, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, some damn fool crusade. This is just a, an opportunity for us to step up and reclaim what's ours, our birthright, our, our freedoms, our, our conscience, our our property. Anyway, Gary, I appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks for thanks for injecting some common sense and humor into uh, an otherwise hopelessly politicized landscape. As always, I love it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.